I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A Living History Production. I'm Peter Hart. And I'm Gary Bain. And together, we're Pete and Gary's Military History Podcast. And welcome to the podcast. This is our 150th, so something Yay! special. Who thought we'd live so long? Yeah. And how are we celebrating the 150th episode, Pete? We're doing <laughs> nothing, aren't we? We've got a special episode with Nikolai Eberholt, our favourite. Yeah. So would this by any chance be the Austro-Hungary and the Eastern Front 1917? Because we've done 19, 14, 15 and 16. I think you're probably right. It's a good guess. Yeah. But but as we will see, it's probably going to be a little less Austria Hungary this time. Oh, because of events. For 150th, it's a subject we know absolutely nothing about and get somebody else to do it. That's the spirit. (laughs) I'm honored. Go, give us an introduction. And what are we doing? Where are we? Where are we? What's happening? We are in 1917. We are in 1917, uh, and last time we talked a bit about what happened in 1916, and a whole lot happened in 1916. Um, but really entering 1917, we're, we're also entering probably one of the least understood and most complicated chapters of of the entire war, and, and really this is where the overall history uh, of, of what's going on is pretty much overshadowed by this thing, the revolution, which we haven't talked about yet, which we'll get to in a moment. Um, but we sometimes forget that there's more than one revolution. There's a whole lot of things happening in between. There's a whole lot of fighting, even though we sometimes think that fighting just ended with a revolution in the East and nothing else from there on. Uh, so a lot happens in, in on the Eastern Front in 1917, 18, and even into 1919. Um, and it's also one of the most um, consequential periods in modern history, really, because besides being an extremely interesting period from a military historian's point of view, it's also one of these these turning points in history. And a lot of the things that we know from the later on in 20th century is really kicked off here. Well, it's really um, yeah, it's seismic, like, isn't it? It's, I mean, it yeah, is a, it's something that impacts not only the time period, but the whole of the 20th century. Yeah, and uh, he is right. Um, and quite well. surprisingly, it's uh, it's not something that is often covered in a lot of books about the war. Uh, you sometimes hear it, hear it in uh, or, or read it in, in, in books about 
the revolution or, or other things. But, but about the war, this, this part is often a little murky, uh, to say the least. Even something like Norman Stone's classic book on, on, on the Eastern Front uh, is dated 1914 to 17, but he really doesn't cover much after the, the Brusilov offensive up to the February Revolution. Uh, and nothing after that really is covered. Uh, so, so, so it is not understood, but even preparing for this episode... We, I think we we wanted to do a seventeen eighteen, and just there's so much happening here that that it's impossible to do in 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 one episode. So we have to split it up again. Uh, so we're doing seventeen. So where had we left the Austro-Hungarian army? Where the, how are they faring? Well, the short the short <laughs> term is just uh, exhausted because uh, yeah, we heard about the Brazil offensive uh, last time, and. The army is completely beat after this, uh, and um, the we talked about the, the 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 victory, the Russian victory there being largely a Pyrrhic victory, uh, but it really severely damaged the Austro-Hungarian army, and they will not recover from this. Which is also why, in this episode, we're going to hear a little less about them than maybe in the other ones, because they're going to there are other people ready to take over in a way. But we'll get to that. Um, so there's your the leadership. Yeah, Ooh, there is you know uh, in that, Northern. Gary? Yeah, it, it wouldn't be the notes. <laughs> so Conrad's out and ours yeah. is in. Your ass is in, isn't it, Pete? <laughs> oh, dear. Yeah. Oh, dear. But, uh, yeah, what happens in, uh, in late 1916 is that the emperor dies um, and Austria-Hungary uh, gets a new emperor. So uh, Franz uh, Josef, who is at that time 86, dies on the 21st of November, 1916. And he was replaced by a new ruler in the form of Emperor Karl, who is only 34. Uh, sorry, I'm, now I'm actually uh, a little unsure. I think he's 34 when he dies. He's not 34 when he takes over. Uh, he's, he's, not that. That. he's definitely much yeah, easier he is, to spell. He's a younger guy. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but uh, yeah, uh, he is. Uh, he's only been the heir apparent since the assassination of Franz Ferdinand in the summer, which kicked off this war. Um, previously, he sort of wanted to be a military man. He wanted a military career. Uh, and during the war, he's held various military commands as a, co- on a, uh, as a corps commander on the Italian front, later army commander on the Eastern front, fighting the Russians and the Romanians. Um, and he's known as a commander who really cares about his men uh, and doesn't want to see them die and suffer, needlessly, really. Um, so it should probably be no surprise that he's not a huge fan of Conrad because that's a little in the other direction. Um, so in early 1916, he replaces Conrad with uh, a more manageable chief of staff in the form of Arthur Arts von Stra- Sorry? You said 16. You mean 17. Oh, yeah. Early yeah. Six- 17. Yeah, of course. Uh, he replaces Conrad with uh, with uh, Art- Arthur Arts von Straussenberg, who is um, who has previously commanded the first army in the Romanian campaign. Um, and he is... Well, he's he's let, less political than Conrad. He's a little more of a yes man. Um, he's not particularly capable <laughs> compared to a lot of others, but but he's easier to push around. Hang on. Hang on. Uh, the, <laughs> yeah, I mean, what 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 Carl doesn't want is a Conrad who 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 runs on his own will and and has his own agenda in a way. Um, he he wants a man that he can manage. So a bit of an ours liquor. 
<laughs> well done. Well done. Oh, Wonderful fun. For Gary. That was your... <laughs> yeah. Oh, you worked on that one. Oh, dear. I can hear the applause on the internet now. Yeah, exactly. Or the abuse. Um yeah, um, but but the the army really uh, the the army that he 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 gets uh, is is an army that has lost all ability to launch offensives at least at least in the east uh, and especially without any German command uh, and um, it's a, oh sorry German aid and it's an army that is uh, subjected to more and more German rule and command as we talked there is the unification of command on the eastern front during the Brusilov offensive. That just gets more and more and more. Uh, basically, becomes a German command on the Eastern Front by this point. Also, uh, Austria-Hungary starts to focus more on the Italian front. Uh, by by end of 1916, they've managed to fight off nine Italian offensives, um, and there will be more, uh, of course, in uh, in 1917. So they have their hands full down there. Uh, and then you're also seeing uh, a lack of equipment, a lot of lack of medicine, a lack of food. Uh, because this uh, blockade, the naval blockade, is really beginning to bite a lot in Austria, as well as you're emptying your country of, of men um, that were needed in the industry, in farming, so on and so on. So you're really starting to see a lot of of problems here that will only grow as well. And we have a quote here by a Czech telegraph officer of the 8th Cavalry D- Division called Vladimir Sukori. Towards evening, entire ranks of Russians climbed out of their trenches, unarmed, loaves of bread in their hands, and approached our wire barriers in front of our 11th Dragoon Regiment. As our patrols approached, the Russians burst into wild laughter and disappeared, waving their bread in the air. As they came unarmed, they were not fired upon. It was probably all just a joke. They were mocking our lack. It's lack of food, doesn't it? Our stomachs feel the increasingly reduced food rations. Here we are only dependent on the military kitchen. Two days a week, so-called wild uh, veterans, (laughs) vegetables, i.e. nettles. Oh, yum, yum, Gary, your mouth must be watering. Milk, thistle and others are to be prepared for the men as a side dish. We can shamelessly call this war the stomach war. Blimey, you've been fighting that a fair while, Gary. Hard to win. <laughs> Wretches from the working detachment, young lads come to us every day. They, they even kneel down and beg for bread, but the bread is not even enough for us. And the worst thing is that there is no hope for better times. This evening we were informed that the portions of bread and side dishes will be even smaller. How we were looking forward to the new harvest. And for now, <laughs> instead of an allowance, we have to make do. Where are the golden days at the beginning of the war? We suffered from hunger, but it was only temporary caused by poor communication and rapid constant movement of troops. But now it is permanent. We ate and drank well then when we were in the villages. Only when we camped in the open field or in the forest were we, were we, de- we were dependent on the military kitchen. Gone are those days. <laughs> So uh, yeah, he writes that in his diary. He's uh, he's feeling it, and he will feel it even more. And by the end of the war, the the army is pretty much starving. At this point, they're just beginning to feel how how it's it's going to be, and it's going to go down really bad. So uh, that's the Austro-Hungarians. Where are we with the German army, our friends? 
in the East. Yeah. The Germans, um, they have no confidence in their Austro-Hungarian allies. Uh, after the Brazil offensive, there is no belief in the capabilities of, of the Austro-Hungarian soldiers. Uh, they know that they need to allocate more troops to the east in the new year. They know that they need to take up uh, most of, of the command in this area and that they will have to carry this front uh, almost uh, on their own. Um, then there is also beginning to be a renewed focus on ending the war in the east, especially um, this will especially come with um, or when, when the United States joins the war in, in, in April that year. Um, but uh, but yeah, Hindenburg and Ludendorff are now commanders of the entire German war effort, while Max Hoffmann, who played an important role in the victory of Tannenberg in 1940, he's now the chief of staff of the German army in the east. So they are all people now um, that know that the war in the east is important and that you need to finish it before you can go after the west. That's that's their philosophy, and they, they share that. Uh, so that's going to be the major major objective for the Germans in, in 1917. And where does that lead the Russians then? We've mentioned on a number of occasions the enormous casualties that they were suffering. Yeah, the army spent it, uh, as well as all the others. They have now suffered enormous casualties numerous times. We've gone through a lot of these battles and they're always enormous casualties. Uh, so their offensive strength is also expended. There is no strength for any large offensive in the foreseeable future. Um, and the army is beginning to reach some sort of breaking point, but it's still fighting. It's it, it, very important to say that the, 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 the war is still going on. There, it's not like we get into 1917 and there's no fighting power left in the, in the Russian army. They will f- fight and they're still at the front. Uh, I- I- even in, um, in January 1917, they're launching a series of offensives uh, on the northern front. So the northern front will be in around um, uh, the Latvia area uh, on today's map around Riga. Um, so, so they're actually going on the offensive. They're, they don't come to anything, of course, but but they but they are going on the offensive. So the, the soldiers are still fighting, uh, but there is also a growing resentment on the home front. There is no end in sight um, at the front, and this. Um, this we really see that that now the war is is, is dragging on, and it, it it becomes clear that Russia cannot probably not win this war, uh, but has to find some way out of it. We have here a um, an account by a British journalist, um, Robert Scotland Little. Uh, he's a journalist and a Red Cross volunteer with the Russian army who who writes about the the what he sees at the front, this endlessness and the sameness. There is a sameness about the trenches. Our Russian lines are all alike. Pine wooden trench supports, sandbags and works of earth, narrow loopholes for rifles and broader ones for mitrailleuses, and outside, westwards, zigzagging obstacles of wire. We see the enemy's domain. It looks to us just as our lines must look to him. We see his sandbags and his heaped-up earth. We see the slits through which his bullets come. Although the enemy we do not see, we know his eyes are turned on us, while ours are fixed on where he is. There is a sameness in the land behind the Russian lines. The shell-popped plains, the broken woods, the Derevni where soldiers live. Then, a Derevni is uh, a construction, literal or figurative, uh, whose sole purpose is to provide an external facade to a country that is faring badly so that they believe you are faring better. Oh, you're like a dictionary to me. 
Well, that was from a dictionary. I'll continue. The Derevni, where soldiers live. Then there are the dugouts, too, roofed with earth and turf. There are the cooking wagons of the regiments. There are the men resting or eating from their blackened ration pans or lined up for the drill. There is a sameness in the rough cart tracks, wide, rutted roads that widen as each week goes by. Rain falls, the roads are churned to mud, and then the drivers seek a better way and turn their horses' heads towards the rutless ground. Some fields are all a track. Reserve trenches lie unevenly across the land. Barbed wire is ready too, with gaps where traffic may pass through and nearby trestle gates of wire to close them if need be. Shell wagons pass daily to and fro. Four horses, six or even eight are yoked to every one. Wagons of bread and ugly carcasses of meat. Wagons of hay tied up in bales or corn in leaking sacks. Wagons of wire and staves and planks of wood. One sees them every day. And men, in ones and twos, the companies and regiments, they march across these tracks behind the lines. There is a sameness about them all. There is a sameness about the wounded. The monotony of war is this. Guns and munitions and men and broken land and dead and wounded soldiers. The great coats splashed with blood and torn with shot. The bandages that shook so doubly clean. Sorry, that look so doubly clean. The tired, grimed faces are very much alike all are. Some men have greater wounds than others. Some have legs hurt and some are injured in the arm. Some have their heads bound up, others have body wounds. But one does not consider this. The place of wound, also its gravity, are merely indirect. The point one thinks of at the war is that this man is hurt, is that he cannot fight, is that another man must come to fill his place. Ten wounded, one may say, or ten times ten. Other details are not for us to know. Let doctors fight with death to save their charge. Let nurses guide him night and day. The future of the soldier rests with God. The vital fact is, we must have another man. And the sum total of this sameness is usually the same. The situation remains unchanged. Are you saying that he was all pretty samey? Oh, I think it's pretty much the same. There, 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 there is a bit of sameness in it, isn't there? No. Yeah. No, but... I'm um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah. Oh, the, what uh, are the Russian plans for 1917? Go on, quickly, quickly, quickly. Yeah. Yeah, quickly. we'll do it quickly. We'll do it quickly. Yeah, because <laughs> even though this is uh, this seems to be completely that uh, uh, the Russians can't do anything, there are big plans for 1917. There are uh, as several plans. There, there are some that want, want an offensive in the north around Riga. There are some that want an offensive to link off with Bulgaria. Uh, there's uh, or sorry to uh, link off with the Romanians and fight the Bulgarians and all the way down to Turkey. Um, knock Bulgaria out of the war. There, there are Brusilov who wants a bigger offensive like the one he had before, and then there's the Tsar who's trying to f- find the best way. But none of this is really realistic. They they are in fact completely unrealistic. <laughs> it's just an indication that there is no end in sight. They, they they everybody's mind is still on continuing this war. But then something happens. And what? 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 
Revolution breaks out. Yeah, the February revolution breaks out in March because, hey? of, yeah, because um, of course we're working with uh, the old style of calendar oh. that the Russians work. So it's in February for them, but it's in March for us. Um, yeah, but I'm not going to go into the finer details of the revolution because we Hooray! don't want to get I mean, down well, in this. Oh. Yeah, yeah, too bad. But suffice huh? to say, the Tsar is replaced, isn't he, by a provisional government? Yeah, he is, uh, he is uh, replaced by a provisional government. It's important to say that this is not the Bolshevik revolution that we all know and love. <laughs> but uh, yeah, people are tired of the war, uh, and especially the way the war be- is being waged. And remember, since 1915, the Tsar has been the head of the army, and so he receives a lot of the blame for how badly this war is being managed. And that's what comes back now, that they're saying that this is enough. They don't want to see, see him anymore. So he is replaced, uh, and the new government comes in, so what will happen? Yeah, well, on the 1st of May, the provisional government claims that it will fight the war to uh, to continue the war. This is uh, the the uh, what, what the Foreign Affairs, uh, Minister of Foreign Affairs, Pavel Milyokov, he calls its glorious conclusion. So they want to continue until the end. Um, and this pro- proclamation leads to widespread demonstrations and calls for Milyukov to resign. This was known as the April crisis. So even though, again, it was on the 1st of May, but the crisis is in April, uh, all of this old styling. But but yeah, there's a lot of resentment here. Uh, and um, we have uh, here a, a, a small um, quote by the uh, Russian general Nikolai Golovin. Those who expected that crowds of enthusiastic volunteers would start for for the front from the interior, as had been the case in the French Revolution, were making a fundamental mistake. The hidden, but at the same time, the chief driving power behind the Russian Revolution lay in the unwillingness of the mass of the people to continue the war. Right. Just a short quote to say that this is not uh, a revolution that is going to gather and create this this uh, fantastic army that is going to go on on to conquer the half of of Europe. This is a war, a revolution where people just don't want to fight anymore. Is this um, the Kerensky, Alexander Kerensky? I'm not sure when that comes in or when it doesn't. That come comes in. in he uh, he is the uh, the minister of war um, at, at this point. So he, right. he becomes gotcha. the minister of war in this new new government. Uh, it is um, is led led by a prince. Actually, the the whole notion of of uh, where the monarchy is is going to be mostly unresolved for the period of time. They're just put, putting the Tsar aside and don't really know what to do with him. Uh, but but yeah, it's it's too complicated. But, but but the result of all these uh, these uh, April crisis is that that you get a a very divided government because as a compromise they begin to include socialists in the in the government. Uh, and um, in effect, it makes that there is a lot of power struggles within the government, uh, and it makes it very difficult for them to 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 work effectively and to make decisive policy. Um, and this is also seen in the army because with a new government comes a new army. Um, so, so um, for our purposes, let's focus more on what happens at the front. Well, one of the first things that happens is that they issued this what's called the Petrograd Soviet Order Number One. And remember, Soviet is just it's not communism yet. It's just it just means sort of a council in Russian. Uh, but but the Petrograd Soviet Order Number One is issued uh, on the fourteenth of March, and it says that the soldiers and sailors sh- uh, shall only obey the officers if the orders that they give are in accordance with the decrees by the Petrograd Soviet. 
So basically, if the if the officers don't follow the guidelines of this uh, Petrograd Soviet, of the provisional government and, and all that, they don't need to be followed. They also uh, want all units to elect representatives to establish soldiers' committees and to uh, to um, to uh, send representatives to the Soviet. So basically, there will be committees that run the units uh, instead of officers. Then they go on to blacklist unsympathetic, untrustworthy, and undesirable uh, officers. Um, and also, they go away with standing to attention, saluting, and addressing officers formally. This is all process because they're tired of the the soldiers are tired of the way that the officers have been running this war. So this is sometimes called the most democratic army in the world. And uh, that sounds good, except this is an army. <laughs> so it's not exactly ideal that it's a very democratic institution. Uh, and what it results in is basically a complete breakdown in discipline um, and a lot of problems. So what happens next? And, yeah, I mean, it's easy to also just jump because, and I have done this in my notes and everything, Everything for you to to say now we jump to summer and to what is known as the Kerensky Offensive. But it is also important to note that there are actual battles going on along the way. There are lots of fighting here here go, going on. There is um, there are of course small engagements here and there. There are small att attacks. This is positional warfare as we know it anywhere else. But some of these are quite big. Uh, in April, the Germans, in an attempt to to eliminate a bridgehead that the Russians have on the on the wrong side of the uh, what's known as the Stokhod River, um, make an attack and they inflict some twelve thousand casualties on the Russians in, in a day. So these are not just small scale conflict and battles all the time. So there is fighting, but what is really building up towards is that in June. The uh, liberals within the provisional government convince the socialists within the government that a new offensive is, is needed. Um, so, so it's this the liberals' because, fault, you're saying. Liberals, you like that, wouldn't you? Yeah. <laughs> Politics, yeah, but, Gary and Nikolai. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, but uh, basically, there is a request again and again and again, uh, from Russia's allies to put pressure on the Germans and launch this offensive. So remember where we are. We're in June. So we're just after the mutinies in France. Uh, this is important to know. And, of course, we're right before the launch of the what will be the, the third Battle of Ypres. Uh, so, so this is a critical point that if you can put some pressure on the Germans, then uh, maybe something can happen in the West, like we've seen so many times before. But there's also a uh, hope that this... With, with chaos in the army and all this uh, breakdown of discipline, that if, if there is an offensive and an operation and actual something to do and a big thing, then there will be restore, uh, restoration of the discipline in the ranks. And perhaps if there is a successful operation, then morale and faith in the revolution and, and the government will be restored. And lastly, uh, it's already clear, as we said before, that Russia is probably not going <laughs> to win this war. Uh, but if they have some sort of success, they can sue for peace at some point and maybe have a better bargaining chip um, in a in a way. But but yeah, um, as the as as mentioned before, the army is really poor state, uh, and that's where this Kerensky guy comes in that Pete mentioned before. And because a lot of soldiers don't want to fight, do they? Yeah. Yeah, they don't want to fight, and uh, that becomes the job of Kerensky to make them fight. So Alexander Kerensky, he is um, 
the minister of war uh, of the Russian provisional government, and he's also sometimes called the persuader in chief because he he is uh, he's a very popular man. He's sometimes he has all these weird nicknames, almost like a, a North Korean dictator, like prophet and hero of the revolution, first love of the revolution, genius of Russian freedom, all this fancy uh, <laughs> nicknames that he's given. And he's a brilliant orator. So he sets out on, on a tour uh, to the front to convince individual regiments and units to fight uh, and to go on the offensive. So this is why the, the offensive is very much named after him. Uh, and, and there is a lot of, um, of work put into this, but he does succeed in a lot of cases. He does manage to actually uh, make a lot of these units and these soldier councils uh, agree to, okay, we will go on the offensive. We will see if we can fight this war to a successful conclusion in some way. Um, but yeah, there's still a lot of resentment in the army. Um, and many soldiers don't want to fight and reject the new government's call for war to continue. I'll read the next letter because uh, you're doing a lot, so I'll, I'll take this one on. Uh, this is a letter to the Petrograd sold Soviet from an anonymous soldier. Uh, very wise of him, I suspect. <laughs> I think that's a very wise of him, yeah. We, the soldiers, sit in the trenches in the dirt and water where every day tens of thousands die and long for peace while you, the bloodthirsty rulers of the country, are all writing orders for us to fight till final victory. What, for, what will freedom be for us when you want us to keep on fighting and when you keep singing the same songs that the old government sang? This will not be freedom but a new greater senseless and bloody war which will devour tens of millions of innocent people and bury every living thing without any benefit to anybody and also our brother soldiers who when chosen as deputies sing the same senseless song to final victory we elected them because they promised before the election that they would try to get peace but when they left the trenches they forgot their loyal comrades now they say let them die while we the deputies are sitting here comfortably in committees what a way to think. You're only losing the army this way and putting damnation on your own head. Well, that's certainly exactly what they did. Uh, uh, I blame those liberals. <laughs> so surprise, what was Kerensky's plan then? Yeah, it's a, it's pretty much a, more or less a repeat of the Brusilov offensive of 1916. Um, they they want to do it's almost the same area they want to attack, uh, and uh, by this time with um, with the Tsar out uh, and the new government, Brusilov is made uh, commander in chief of the army in May. Uh, he's still a very popular man and and one that the, the Russian soldiers might actually still follow. Uh, so, the, so they're counting on this last chance to really knock Austria-Hungary out of the war. So this is victory um, or bust? Yeah, this is the last chance to do anything. This is throwing all eggs in the same basket and just going forward and see if, if you can actually do something. Um, so the offensive in, in Russian normally called the June offensive begins in, for, for us in, in late June. On the 29th of June, there's a, a massive artillery uh, a, a barrage of the of the Austrian positions there, and then on the the first of July, the infantry attacks with some success uh, f for the Russians and the um, against the Austrian guns, but we see at an enormous cost. And uh, we have here a uh, a quote by General Emil Teifinger. He's the commander of the thirty second Field Artillery Brigade, an Austro-Hungarian, uh, who is who is describing some of the early fighting here. 
On the top of the Megillah height, the Russian 18-centimetre shells and heavy mines put on a hell of a concert. Through dense clouds of smoke and fountains of earth, you could only see the blurry outlines of flying debris. Heavy artillery battles continued throughout the day, but the Russian infantry still stayed put. However, we learned from a deserter that they would set out at dawn. Indeed, the enemy artillery got to work before sunrise, and as it began to dawn, assault waves could already be seen among the Russian barbed wire obstacles on the northern slope of the Megilla. It whistled, hissed and cracked. Thick clouds of gas weighed down on Jezia's Yanka and Lorin Koch. Finally, it was now past nine o'clock. The high tension, which had gripped everything for many hours, was relieved. The enemy attacked on the north slope of the Megillah. In no time, all batteries covered him with a barrage, and to prevent him from advancing, the batteries of the German 197th Division put down a curtain of fire in front of him. After scarcely ten minutes, our reception had become too hot for him, and he retreated to his trenches quicker than he'd exited them. We were very happy about this, but not untroubled, since the 19th Infantry Division had meanwhile lost Augustovka. At about 10 o'clock, the Russians tried their luck against the beak-like part of the position, southeast of Prezhovch, and a few minutes later, their waves of attack broke through again towards the Megila and Zurechi sector. The same thing happened again, <clears throat> and the combined barrage decided the fight in a few minutes. Meanwhile, however, a severe fate befell the inner flanks of the 19th and 54th Infantry Divisions. The sectors of five battalions were broken through. The aforementioned attack on our southern wing had scarcely been repelled when red flares rose again on the northern slope of the Megillah and on Zboro Road. Our artillery was too weak to thoroughly block off the wide area, but the batteries of the 197th helped, and so this Russian attack also came to nothing. Now, uh, I've got another account to read, uh, and this is from uh, a German officer, Ernst Rosenheimer uh, Heiner, of the 96th Infantry Regiment. And he said this. It's the same area, isn't it? Uh, we were to march towards the Megillah Hills and prevent the Russians from advancing any further by occupying key positions near Zarudzi. As soon as we left Slohna, we got a clearer picture of the situation. Austrian troops were trying to retreat through smaller canyons. Whipped by their drivers, the horses strained and pulled the wagons with all their might, since shrapnel and shell bursts came quite close at times. We could see clearly the commotion and the feverish drive with which everyone tried to get out of the danger zone. We observed fleeing Austrians and wounded German machine gunners racing back breathlessly, never once looking back. Over hillsides, Hungarian cavalry were galloping through undulating cornfields to salvage their cannons from their sights as quickly as possible. Soon they were coming back with them at a fast trot. One Austrian company, under the command of a cadet, was added to ours to lend us support. I was rather dubious about them, as the cadet himself told us these were some of the worst soldiers. They had been pulled out from the front line in order to get more training in Zlodzkow. Their Hungarian comrades of the 32nd Austro-Hungarian Infantry Division on the front and Falkley had had tough luck, while our own 3rd Battalion already had suffered huge losses near Konyuchi due to the breakdown of Austrian troops. The Hungarian units, who were now occupying our positions near Zarudzi on the Murgilla Hills, were mostly taken prisoners, barely escaping complete annihilation. 
so is it going well for the Russians or not? I'm, 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 it seems. Yeah, I mean, I mean, there are some early successes. Actually, some of the uh, the, the main successes here uh, is in the what's it called Sporov area, uh, and that's actually carried out by uh, Czechoslovak tro- troops of the uh, Czechoslovak legions, which will play an enormously important role in what later happens in, in Russia. But they are all uh, former soldiers of the Austro-Hungarian army who've been recruited to fight for the Russians. And they have some success. Uh, and there are some other small local uh, breakthroughs, as we can see here. I mean, uh, for, from the, the last quote especially, there are places where the, the Austro-Hungarians simply fall back. I mean, they, they are a beaten army as well. But it isn't as much a success as uh, the previous year at Brasilov. This is, is not exactly going uh, all too well everywhere. And soon, um, just a few days later, on, on the 3rd of July, the Russian attacks really begins to to bog down. We have here a letter home by an American observer, Donald Thompson, who writes uh, home on the 3rd of July, as, a, as we said, was the day that it began to break down. Well, Russia has at last started her offensive. It was started by Kerensky himself, who, after travelling along the position here for about 30 miles addressing different regiments, led the attack himself. So far, the Russians have bagged over 10,000 Austrians. This attack is in the charge of General Brusilov. The advance was not carried through without trouble. The 12th and 13th Divisions refused to obey Kerensky's order and were surrounded by Cossack troops, especially after they had retreated in the village of Djurkov which was shelled all afternoon with shrapnel. About five o'clock in the evening, the Cossacks charged and captured 500 of these mutinous troops, and the others immediately surrendered. So things are getting rough. Yeah, and we can see that there are divisions and and units that refuse to fight. I mean, most of them go on the offensive, but some of them meet very little resistance and then decide, ah, we don't really want to do this uh, anymore. And since we have the power to decide ourselves if we want or not, then let's better not. Um, yeah, but uh, after the first setbacks uh, begin here, there, there, there are a few days of a bit of a stalemate, but then they renew the attacks. Uh, they they launch a powerful attack led by uh, a guy called Lavra Kunilov, who we will also hear about later, on the 6th of July around uh, the area of, uh, of, the, of the city of Stanislav and, and do have some more gains. Uh, before they are, they are finally halted outside of a place called Kalush. And then um, what, what you see is that the Germans begin to send in more and more troops. Uh, and by 1916, uh, sorry, not 1916, 16th of July, of course, uh, the, the, uh, the offensive uh, is pretty much collapsed. And we have here a report from the Russian 9th Army that really sums up what's happening here. The offensive impulse was quickly exhausted. Most of the divisions are in a state of increasing decay. There is no longer any talk of authority and obedience. Persuasions and orders have lost their effect. They are responded to with threats and sometimes with executions. So, uh, right. So what happens next? What happens, I mean... Uh, well, we're in for a treat well, now because the Austro-German army then goes on the counter-offensive in just uh, Geristen. Galicia uh, in July you know, almost nailed, <laughs> and you almost nailed the place <laughs> and we're going to have a real treat now because Nikolai is going to tell us what Danish German soldier Matthias Müller says Müller yeah Müller. Matthias Müller I, I, I'll see if I can nail the accent on this yeah, one yeah you go for it yeah uh, but before that let me just say that it's actually something that that the um, 
that they they have um they have that they have worked on uh in in theory this this idea they know the Austrians and Germans that the Russian attack will come so they're prepared for this this uh this offensive so so as soon as the Russians go on the offensive they they when they give way and when they reach the point where they can't anymore they're ready to go on the offensive and launch a powerful offensive so it's not so spontaneous it is something that is planned but we can really see here in this account that I'll, I'll read now um the how how the experiences. So, so he writes, Matthias Müller here, um, Danish German soldiers, of course. He writes, um, it was the first time I took part in an advance. It was extremely interesting. The troops marched as they had learned it in theory and practiced it on the troop training ground in larger formations. First patrols, then the vanguard, a smaller force, liaison patrols, and then gradually the main forces, secured to both sides by flanking patrols. We covered approximately 15 to 20 kilometers. It might not seem very much, but it was quite, it was quite tiring. We marched with full packing. The horses had enough uh, to pull and were badly fed. The oat rations were not large, so they were quite exhausted. The carriages were not uh, allowed to be loaded with extra luggage. Every moment, the column stopped and people waited for it to go on. The roads were not good either. The terrain hilly. In the evening, uh, you, you had to find quarters. During the day, you didn't s- see much of the fighting. In the distance, scattered rifle fire was heard. In the evening, the Russians and our shock troops uh, dug into small holes in the ground and kept each other in check by rifle fire at night. Flares were uh, incessantly fired to illuminate the terrain. In the early hours of the morning, the shock troops uh, then again went on the attack and threw the Russians out of the night positions. The Russian troops were in poor condition and very demoralized. Their footwear was worn out and many had rags tied around around their feet. Some ran barefoot. Every day when we marched across the front line of the night, we met the same sight. Everywhere there were dead, wounded and invalids who could not keep up anymore. Scattered on the fields were raised Russian rifles with bayonets stuck in the ground, a sign from passing shock troops that there was a body or a wounded person. The roads were the worst. Most of them lay there. The bodies lay in the ditch, completely covered in mud. It all reminded me of battlefields as I had imagined them when I read accounts of previous wars as a boy. On the first day, we passed the former Austrian and Russian trenches. They were all very well kept, a sign that it had been a quiet position. But we didn't get time to take a closer look at the position. The order was simple, onwards. Well, well no, normally we get complaints about our accent, and I just don't think that's going to change. <laughs> I thought that, that was, yeah, that was I'm, the most I'm brilliant sorry. Danish, yeah. Danish German yeah. accent I've ever heard. And Thank on that you. high note, we'll take a short break. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you 
everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Right. Welcome back. So there were some successful advances, but still the central powers, they're losing men, aren't they? And and they often face fierce pockets of Russian resistance. Could you give us a quote to illustrate that, Gary? And this is German officer Ernst Rosenheiner of the 96th Infantry Regiment. On July 21st, 1917, we're up early in the morning. Colonel Rash takes the company leaders with him into the village. That's a bad name for you, Colonel Rash. (laughs) (laughs) Colonel Rash takes the company leaders with him into the village, where, protected by a stone wall, he gives us detailed orders for the day. Hill 306 is to be taken, and we are to do it, proceeding from our present location at Olcholch. We are to storm the hill at 9.30am. Our artillery starts shooting, but then the attack is postponed to 1030 then to 11.30 and 12.30. At 12.15, our attack is cancelled because the Russians are advancing approximately 800 metres to the left. Apparently, our campaign is now suffering from poor preparation and lack of leadership. We're always late in receiving our orders. As a result, my troops and I had already set out for the attack in the morning. We tried to get across the creek to reach Hills 306. Lieutenant Nile, with his troops, was located nearby. No matter where you walked in the village, the Russians would detect you and shoot from their positions higher up. That's how I lost one of my best men, Private Rodderman, through a direct hit to his throat as he was standing in front of a door of one of the houses. At last, we reached the riverbank, ready to cross over. It was a dangerous manoeuvre because the creek was well covered by machine gun fire. The moment we showed ourselves, the bullets came flying. I was the first to take a big leap across Then I squatted down by the road and leaned against an embankment for protection where the shots whizzed by above my head. The next man jumped but didn't reach me since he was felled by a shot to the head. The next one didn't make it either. Bullets hit his throat and leg, wounding him severely. 
It was a pitiful sight, blood running down from his mouth and nose. Defying death, the medical sergeant jumped after him and bandaged him as best he could. Machine gun fire rattled above our heads, hitting the hard surface of the road like a downpour. Even grenades came flying at this point. I was now completely cut off from my company, for in this fire it would have been foolhardy to try to jump back to reach them. The situation became even worse when suddenly the skies opened. Soon I literally swam in water that came rushing down from the slopes. But I stayed glued to my spot, for only a slight move of my head caused the Russians to take note. Finally, the sun broke through the clouds again. I had to make a decision. I decided to crawl backwards to the riverbank and tried to jump back. Again, it was a leap for life or death. The minute the Russians noticed me, they directed their fire all along the riverbank. I slipped and hit the water. My last moment seemed to have come. With all the strength I could muster, I wriggled back to my hiding place, getting set for another jump. One leap, and I literally flew into the arms of my men who were standing on the other side. So, well, I think one point I'd make about this is it just shows you that the fighting is still intense. Both sides are really hammering seven sorts of shit out of each other at times. To use a technique, and it term. isn't just it isn't just a, a retreat uh, and an easy busy uh, just fo- follow the retreating men. I mean, th- there are these holdups and, and intense fighting along the way, as you say. Um, and that also comes to an end because the, the counteroffensive is extremely su- successful. They they, uh, they 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 go quite far, but uh, in the end, they they do have to stop due to overextension of the supply lines. And also, although we don't really cover it much here, uh, things that happen on the Romanian front: the Romanian launch a successful offensive, what's known as the Battle of, and I'm not even sure that I can pronounce it, Marasti, um, on the twenty second. No, I think it's yeah, 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 yeah. All right, thank you, thank I'm you. I'm going with Yeah, uh, and uh, they they launched that on the 22nd of, of July, and and basically it means that you have to divert troops to that area as well. Um, but the result of the offensive uh, in general is uh, that that the Russian army is now even in a worse shape than it was. Brusilov is um, he he uh, he tells uh, Kerensky you have to reinstate capital punishment and discipline in the army and that is not very popular plus this didn't go so well so he's replaced by uh, this guy i mentioned before who's called lavra konilov um as a chief of staff but there's also a lot of things that that then start to happen because uh it, it is felt that this is not gone, gone well and and there's unrest at home uh what, what is known as the july days and the conilo affair it just very quickly cover what the, what this uh, means it is um just to sum it up here's a here's a quote by by uh, this milyukov guy we had before he says there's chaos in the army chaos in foreign policy chaos in in industry and chaos in the nationalist question so there is chaos everywhere but uh yeah the july days is is really just a lot of widespread disorder in the capital there's anger at the government there's anger at the problems at the front and there's a lot of this is, is started by by, so, by Bolsheviks and, and and socialists, and they also they crack down hard on that. They establish a new government in in Russia under Kerensky, so now he's the the head of the government, and it's a it's a return to a more conservative and hard rule. They they kick the socialists out. This this is now a more conservative government, like 
almost what we see a little bit in the Tsarist time. So we've gone a little bit in the other direction. This becomes, of course, unpopular because it's an abandonment of the more uh, liberal direction that was promised by the provisional government. Uh, in August, Kornilov, the chief of staff, he is involved in this weird coup that nobody really exactly knows to date uh, what was about. But it's not really clear what happens. But what he does is that he blames the uh, Petrograd Soviet for the collapse of the army. And he's somewhat right uh, with the Petrograd order, number one. Uh, and he seems to work with Kerensky, maybe not. That's a little um, not really uh, clear, um, but he's trying to topple the uh, the Petrograd Soviet and, and maybe even reinstate sort of a military dictatorship. Uh, but he's beaten off; it's a complete failure, uh, and and um, and um, it it really just creates more trouble. <laughs> it just creates more problems in in the army in the ranks, and it's just some examples. I mean, this is too much to cover here, but it's just examples that there's absolute chaos at home. Please, uh, this is please, not just happening. Please, here. Uh, please, can I guess? Can I guess who takes advantage of this? Oh uh, yeah, it, it, is it the Germans? <laughs> it's the Germans, but also no. uh, the Bolsheviks, of course. Yes. Um, but we'll get to that in a little bit because, um, yeah, there's uh, the, still after all this and after all this chaos and after the Kerensky offensive, there is still fighting and the, the Russian army is still at the front at this point. Um, so the Germans will start to look at a, at a way because now we're we're in, in autumn uh, of, of 1917. And, and this, <laughs> as we started with, the Germans really want to end the war in 1917, and we are almost at the end of, of, of the year now. Uh, and they will start to look at a way to do do this uh, and, and to do it fast. So um, so Ludendorff, he really wants to force the, the provisional government to the peace table. He wants to put pressure on important Russian cities, um, St. Petersburg, uh, Riga, all these, uh, these uh, major cities that are within reach in a way. Uh, he wants to s- straighten his line. He wants to threaten St. Petersburg. He, he wants to, to, to do something. So in, uh, in early September, actually, on the 1st of September, he launches an attack on, uh, on, on Riga, what's known as the Battle of Riga. With, uh, with a bombardment of the Russian positions. We're not going to go into much, but this is where you see the the, the start of, of the, the, the German artillery tactics that will be used the following year during the uh, the, the spring offensive. This uh, Brückmüller, uh, who, who is a German artillery general who, who develops this pattern of, 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 of firing uh, that, that we will see, and it is really uh, defined or... or, 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 or um, the, the effectiveness is really portrayed here at, at this battle. And then the, the infantry goes on the attack following the, uh, the bombardment. And we have here a very long quote, but I think it's a really good quote. Well, we're uh, going to split this between me and Gary, just to rest our voices. We're not, okay. well, I'll do the first two, and then Gary will we'll take over. Uh, this is, uh, it's an interesting one. Dominic Rickert, 112th uh, Infantry Regiment. And he says this. The dawn came gradually. Hardly a shot was fired. It was the calm before the storm. As it became brighter, I was able to see the water of the Duna, which is flowing quite quickly here. The Russian position on the opposite bank was not yet visible, as white fog prevented us from seeing further. We were all tense about what was about to happen. All at once, the German artillery, which had been concentrated here, started to fire. The shells whizzed over us and exploded on the other side of the river with a booming din. 
A number of mortars, mainly heavy ones, that shoot 200 weight shells, joined the dance. There was such a crashing, whizzing and roaring that my ears started to hurt. As the sun rose, the fog gradually disappeared and I was able to see the Russian position on the opposite bank. It was completely shrouded in black smoke, constantly and everywhere there were abrupt flashes and enormous clouds of smoke shot into the air. There was also dense shell smoke at a number of places in the woods further back where the Russian batteries were probably situated, as these two were being given a, a real lathering by our artillery. This is the, the Brook Muller techniques, taking out the artillery, taking out the command centres. That's what's going. Um, so the Russian artillery then open up, uh, and that starts. Uh, and for a moment, for a while, as it always is, the, the boot seems to be on the other foot. Uh, and this is what uh, Dominic Rickert says then. We were forced to, uh, as a shell, that the Russian shells start to crash down. We were forced to duck down in the trench. A direct hit killed and wounded a number of soldiers not far from me. Straight ahead of us, we heard an enormous impact. Dense black smoke drifted over us and a huge number of clods of earth rained down on us. I looked ahead beyond the rim of the trench to where I could see the shell hole. It was as big as a room and had in any event stemmed from one of the 28 centimetre shells. Then once again there was a roar and at the same moment a terrible impact, this time behind us. The following heavy shells all hit the woods behind us. The barrage of the German artillery and mine throwers went, oh that's Minenwerfers I presume, uh, went on and on. In the middle of this din came the orders, get ready. We looked at each other. We can't possibly swim the river, said some of my neighbours. And that's an amazing quote. Um, because the, the river, it's just, its not a small river, is it, the Duna? No, it's its a quite big river. And it's, it's one that they've been fighting along uh, for, for years now. Uh, with strong positions on both sides, really. It would pretty well have been. It looked like it was a suicidal task. Yeah. But then now, Gary's going to take up the voice of Dominic Rickert, uh, 112th Infantry Regiment. Behind us, we heard a yelling as if horses were being driven forward. I looked back and saw that the bridge train was arriving. They rapidly drove the wagons, which were laden with metal boats across the places in the trench which we had filled in earlier and took them down to the river. A large number of sappers came up at the double behind them, and in no time at all the boats were unloaded and in the water. Now we were ordered, everybody out and into the boats. We were quickly organised and 20 men boarded each boat. Six sappers rowed, and off we went across the river. It was very frightening on the water. We all ducked down into the boats. The shells whooshed overhead while under the, and around us the water gurgled. Wherever I looked, the whole river was seething with boats, which were heading as quickly as possible to the opposite bank. Russian shells landed between the boats in the river, throwing huge columns of water into the air. Another boat upstream from ours suffered a direct hit and sank in a few seconds. The occupants, who had not been wounded, fought with the waves for a short time and then all disappeared. It sent Remember, this is also September. All cold. This is September, yeah, so, so it's already quite cold. When I saw this, I unstrapped my combat pack, opened the waist belt and put my kit beside me in the boat so that I would be more able to swim if the same fate should befall us. I was afraid that we would suffer from Russian machine gun and rifle fire, but apart from individual rifle shots, it remained quiet on the other bank. Now we approached the shore and our artillery moved the barrage further forward. Our boat ground its way into the sand. 
We all jumped out, happy to have firm ground beneath our feet again. Boat after boat arrived, and soon there were hundreds of soldiers standing under cover behind the steep bank, which was about three metres high. The current had carried our boat and all the others downstream. Now, I'll take the next quote just to keep it even. Uh, ama- amazing. They've got unscathed across the duna. That, that is quite amazing. Uh, but it soon becomes apparent why they've made it across. And this next quote from Dominic Richard, I think, makes it clear. He says this. The bank where the German infantry position was situated and the sure. barbed... Russian. Barbed- Russian. I said German, didn't I? Sorry about that. Uh, Was situated and the barbed wire entanglement had all been torn to pieces by the barrage. Now we had to storm the Russian trenches. That was an easy task. We did not encounter any resistance at all. The trench had largely been flattened. Mutilated corpses of the Russian infantrymen were lying all around. Every so often you would encounter an unscathed Russian sitting in the corner of a trench and he would raise his arms in the air when we appeared in order to surrender. There were also fallen Russian soldiers scattered behind the Russian position who had probably been hit while attempting to flee. I looked back towards the opposite bank and could see that the pioneers were already busy constructing a pontoon bridge. Single Russian shells continued to arrive, landing in the river or, or on the opposite bank. Now, so what happens next? Gary, you're going to take up the story. Yeah, well, they're ordered to advance in skirmishing lines on the wood, which lay about 600 metres ahead of them. Uh, and now resistance began to stiffen. Cool. And this is uh, Richard once more. To start with, we were covered by a small extended hill. But when we advanced over the top, we heard the rat-a-tat-tat of several Russian machine guns. The bullets whizzed frighteningly amongst us, and several men were hit and fell to the ground. On my command, my team jumped into a shell hole close by. I quickly made an emplacement for the machine gun with the big spade, so that the barrel barely peeked over the surface of the earth. The Russians were firing like mad, with the result that a number of us were hit while digging in. We quickly loaded our machine gun, and in a period of three minutes, I fired four belts of 1,000 shots. I aimed at the edge of the woods from where the firing was coming and sprayed the bullets left and right, but the Russians' firing continued. In the meantime, everyone on our side had managed to dig in so that the Russian bullets could not do much more damage. It was clear that the Russians had erected hidden machine gun bunkers on the edge of the wood, which we could not deal with. The German artillery came to our assistance. They assailed the edge of the wood with shell fire and shrapnel. With the protection of the artillery fire, we advanced and reached the wood without further losses. Wow. So that, that's a, I think that's a – I know it's a long quote, listeners, but I think that quote was absolutely brilliant, showing – and also showing some of the German advances in tactics. Uh, you know, combat combat assault engineers, in essence, uh, the Bruckmüller yeah, barrage. I mean, it, it's all there, is so, so, Well, also, it's very descriptive. You, yeah about yeah, how to set up that machine gun so that it's literally just on the brow there. I mean, we're seeing things that, that we can recognize looking at the next war, uh, some of the advances into France and into Poland. You, you see this use of, of river crossing techniques and all, and this need to move fast and move the machine guns up and bring them into position. So, so you see a lot of, of, of things here that, that, that this is very different from the earlier quotes that we had of, you know, uh, headlong infantry charges with, with, with not much else. Bit of a spoiler um, there. Some of our listeners may not have known there was another war. Yes. I apologize. Yeah. 
yeah um but uh yeah the uh to, to sum up the battle of, of Riga, um the the uh the germans attacked the russian 12th army and 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 forced them to to retreat or or, or really they they're retreating on their own the 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 resistance that they these soldiers are most likely facing are by the latvian riflemen so these are uh of course uh regiments of the russian army recruited in latvia uh they will also play an important role in in the the, uh, the civil war to come so they're defending um, their homeland uh, the Latvian. They are defending their homeland. They're f- uh, defending outside of Riga as well, of course. Uh, but yeah, it, it's resistance is, is futile. Um, R- Riga was captured on on the on, on the third of September. Uh, so just two days later, and you are capturing uh, one of the biggest cities in Russia, essentially. Um, but but yeah, there is no real result again because the Russian Twelfth Army gets away, and Russia does not ask for an armistice. So so what do you do? You do something more, and that's exactly what the what the Germans start to do. They start to think, what can we do next to to force the the, the Russians to do this? Uh, um, I think what, and what, they come- what, what they come up with is Operation Albion in October. Uh, but what fascinates me is there are whole books about Operation Albion, and that to me mm. gives an idea of how how what a scale this fighting is on. That the fact that there are there are books about Operation Albion, uh, long books. There are actually two books on uh, Operation Albion in English that uh, that are quite good. Uh, and uh, what's interesting about this operation is, of course, it is it is a very small uh, operation in the grand scheme of the war, but it's an extremely successful operation. It's a uh, it's an attempt to uh, for the Germans to take what's known as the West Estonian archipelago. So if you look at Estonia on a the map, there's these two, three big islands uh, right off the coast. But what they do is they protect the whole Gulf of Riga. They protect uh, the Gulf into towards St. Petersburg and taking these, the Russians figure, uh, sorry, the Germans figure, taking these, you can put a lot of, of threat on St. Petersburg because on these islands, the, the Russians have some big uh, naval gun battery, like coastal artillery batteries, huge guns uh, that really protect a large area. And that's what they want to do. But they don't have much, many troops for it. They have very little because at this point, uh, everything's been sucked up on the, on the Western Front, uh, the Third Battle of Ypres. Uh, of Ypres. The, the, that, that's where everything is going to protect Flanders. Uh, so they have very few troops. So they only sent a, a, a small small uh, land force to, to fight here, but a, an enormous fleet. Uh, it, it, I th- it's, it's hard to understand. Of course, the, the vessels are smaller, uh, but they're more vessels in the German invasion fleet or whatever you call it, the amphibious fleet here, than there are at the Battle of Jutland combined. I mean, the, the, there's so many small weird boats and big uh, ships to to do this. And there's a, a quite a big, uh, what is known as the Battle of Moon Sound, is a, quite a, a big uh, naval battle between the Russian Navy and the, the Germans. Uh, and and uh, really, uh, and it, Example of the, well, the only successful amphibious operation of the First World War, uh, with with landing with support. Yeah, I see Peter is doing eyes at them because, because we all know right. which other ones I'm referring to. Yes. The world's biggest failure at Gallipoli. Yes, yeah, exactly. Um, but but it, it is it is one that is studied. You see it in in American literature after the war. You see it in in in, in a lot of like West Point papers are written on. This battle. That's why there is so much on on this uh, relatively small operation, but they do do an impressive job taking out these islands, silencing these batteries, 
and things seems to be happening, but but really we don't know how important this victory is because other things intervene. And uh, what's that? And, and we, what is it? 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 Well, we know we're in October 1917, so of oh. course uh, we get to the October Revolution. And ah. again, uh, it's not really um, – uh, we're not going to go into much of this, but basically what it is is that the Bolsheviks take power in um, in Russia. They topple the, um, the provisional government under the slogan of peace, bread, and land. And of course, with peace – uh, is that you need to make armistice uh, and end the war uh, with the with the they want to end the war. Uh, so so that's why I'm saying we don't know if Operation Albion was successful. We don't know if it actually would have brought the Russians to the table because, well, there's a revolution and then they come to the table anyway. That was that was part of it. Um, but yeah, in uh, in uh, early December they send a, a, a armistice commission and ask for for peace talks to commence. And we have a letter here. From a German soldier named Hermann uh, Labude, I think uh, I'm not really familiar with that last name, uh, and he's actually writing. Uh, uh, he is there to see this uh, this event take place, this historic event, uh, just outside Dunaburg. At the moment, we're having an armistice from December seventh to the seventeenth. Here, in my division, it started on the second. The first rumours began to circulate on December the first. On the second, I was occupying an observation post, which is exceptionally near the railway. In order to make a sketch from there, I saw that the telegraph wires along the railway embankment were being mended. That told a tale, and I was further enlightened by the arrival in the second line of several motor cars. At 4pm, there appeared upon the railway line, which runs between the Russian trenches, the white smoke of a locomotive, and through the storm gaps in the barbed wire entanglements came the Russian delegation. There were about 32 people, officers in uniform, civilians, and, prepare for a shock, one female! A thaw was in progress, and in their elegant clothes they hopped valiantly through the deep mud in and out of the shell holes which were brimful of water. Behind our front line they were joined by our excellencies. Farther back they travelled a little way on our light railway until they and their dispatch cases were received by a Pullman car which was awaiting them. In one of the big headquarter towns, they met our Bavarians and the Austrians. During the past years, we've often, as a joke, asked anybody who came in from a forward observation post, Well, comrade, did you see the peace passing by? <laughs> Hilarious. Now, on this Sunday, I really did see her, and this is what she looks like. Telegraph wires, dispatch cases, and a special train. That's not the train with what's-his-name in it, is it? No. <laughs> That's the delegation. No. Uh, which we left out uh, a little bit. But yeah, um, Very sensibly left out. Very sensibly, yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, he, he's, of course, describing this uh, delegation coming to, to start the peace negotiations. Like, but what, what is, of course, also part of the story is that this 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 man who's talking about peace and all that he will die the following year in france so the war is definitely not over um but but um uh yeah we are now at the end of the year and 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 there's peace talks but that does not mean that the war is is done on the eastern front actually far from it uh, and we're only entering the next chapter I will be looking at that next time one point that, that always fascinated me and i've just checked it was that i was amazed that i was do you know when Kerensky died? Because it's Alexander Kerensky, this man who was involved in all this, the man who formed the provisional government, the Minister of War. Was it in, in the 60s? 1970. 1970. 
It is absolutely yeah, unbelievable so. uh, how long-lived he was and how he managed to survive it all. Especially when you know what happened to a lot of these other Russian <laughs> expats. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. But he is a, a, a fascinating character yeah. uh, and you can r- read a lot of good biographies on him well, as well. Why didn't we talk about a man very- in a train? Oh, that's we'll mention it next time, Gary. We'll mention it next time. Uh, we'd like to thank uh, uh, Nikolai once again for being brilliant. He is so patient with us with our fatuous mistakes. Gary, you're so patient with my many mistakes of omission and commission. And I'm sure you want to be nice to me, Gary. I, I was really grateful you didn't shuffle your papers all the way through. What's a meat? And on that note, cheers, chums. Cheers, everyone. Thanks for listening to the show. Blah, blah, blah. If you'd like to support blah, us, blah, you can now buy us a coffee. Blah, blah, Visit www.buymeacoffee.com backslash PGMH. Or visit www.blahblahblahblahblah. And we'd be jolly grateful. Cheers. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook to learn more about each episode. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you have a couple of options. You can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee.com forward slash pgmh or consider subscribing to the podcast for only two pounds per month and get ad free listening and bonus content you can find links for both on our facebook and twitter accounts sounds great doesn't it